The Black Album was all done in a week. It cost £6,000 to make, including the sleeve, which is absolutely penal. I mean, some people can't make a single nowadays for £6,000, <laughs> myself included. And we just never stopped smirking. We smirked 24 hours a day. And we just kept going, this is amazing. Because none of us had quite realised how amazing the whole thing was until it actually came out the speaker. The mm. idea of taking a rhythm section and an orchestra and doing them live at the same time with the kind of classical overtones within Elton's piano playing and the way Buckmaster wrote his arrangements mm. added up to something completely unique. Mm. And the big thrill, it was silly really, but one of the big thrills was, this is when Carnaby Street was still a very big deal. When you walked up Carnaby Street, I promise you, you heard that out coming out of every single boutique. Not only was it, was it a special part of, um, of Elton's career, it was a very special part of my career as well, doing that album. That was an exclusive little snippet that John Higgins has provided to the podcast from a recording that he made as a young man way back in 1993 at Gus Dudgeon's house in Cookham. We're going to hear more from John later, from the interview that we did together. It wasn't pre-lockdown, it was a while back now, but it was pre-Jewel Box announcement. And I'm in awe of John that he was able to talk about Elton with me for hours without actually mentioning this enormous labour of love that he'd been involved in over the last six months or more. I, I imagine he's fairly relieved now that he's able to talk about it. This is episode 37. Hello, welcome, that's what I'm supposed to say, to um, episode 37 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast. Podcast. This is part two of the celebration of the Elton John album, the Black album, the second album. What do we call this thing? And it's going to follow a pretty similar format of part one, which was episode 34. Five, and I'm going to start out by letting Elton set the scene. He's going to um, propagate the myth that it was Gus that they approached rather than Paul. This is from an interview he did with the Andy Peebles when he was promoting 21 at 33 when the Elton John album was just 10 years old. April 1970, the Elton John album, which is probably my first real musical recollection of Elton John as Elton John, because it had a very striking cover, with all of you, I think, in a line on the back, wearing fairly colourful clothes. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the cover, I think I'm right in saying, was black, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, try and hide as much of his face as possible on the front. <laughs> and uh, it was a very moody cover. That moody cover fooled a lot of people, actually, because Steve Brown stopped producing me, said, I don't want the responsibility anymore. He knew the songs, we had these songs in the can, and he heard Space Oddity by David Bowie, which Gus Dudgeon had produced. Mm -hmm. And he made an appointment for Bernie and I and himself to see Gus. And we played all the demos of the songs to Gus, and Gus wasn't exactly jumping over his seat with excitement. We planned that album, we had to, because of budget. In those days, that album cost about £5,000 to make, which sounds ludicrous now. It was orchestral. All the things were planned, all the notes were written down, even the rhythm notes. I had to play live with everything. Can you imagine? I mean, there was all these brilliant session musicians standing there and string players, and I had to play live. And if I made a mistake, that means they went, oh, God, it's back to looking at the newspapers again. It was a very, very disciplined album for me to make, uh, and very enjoyable one. And to Dick James's credit, he invested a lot of money at that time, because it doesn't sound anything now, but albums are so ridiculous, gone over the top. 
So just like in episode 35, I'm going to play out my edits that I've done using the 5.1 mixes. They're basically instrumental mixes. Sometimes they highlight the band, sometimes they highlight the orchestra. And then I'm going to overlay some of the conversation that John and I had about those songs. John and I went through the songs chronologically in the last episode and we got as far as the Wednesday afternoon session. So that's five sessions in, five three-hour sessions. And so far, um, in that timeline, they'd completed five songs. So today, in today's episode, we're going to cover seven more songs, which they recorded over three sessions. So they were certainly having to pick up the pace, and I'd better do that as well. And just as we welcome Skylar Kanga into the proceedings at Trident on that Wednesday evening, the 21st of January 1970, we're also going to be welcoming her onto the podcast with some snippets of an interview that we did together a fair while back now. Here she is talking about her days as a junior at the Royal Academy, where she was actually, first and foremost, a pianist. Throughout the years there, I, I, they wanted us to take a second instrument. And um, that was the thing then. We all had to play two things. And I'd already tried the violin and failed miserably with my dad. Yes. So I, I actually took second study singing for a while. Okay. And I really, really enjoyed that. And um, and I actually sang a solo in, in the main hall at the academy when I was a teenager in one of the Bach cantatas. I can't believe that I actually did that, but I did. I was quite proud of it, really. Have you but got the control they... these days over your voice still? No. No, no. <laughs> no but, no, but it, it gave me a tremendous uh, insight into phrasing and breathing mm. that, uh, you know, that you, all musicians need to have, really. But the thing was that they kept on about, no, you must have a second instrument. And so at the age of 17, when I was on my last year in the junior department, I thought, well, okay, I tell you what, there's no other lady in the orchestra, in my dad's orchestra, other than the harpist. So I think I'll try the harp. You just thought it was the more feminine thing to do? No, it's just I wanted to play. And there was it was an all-male world. Oh, really? World. Oh, these days, I'm, it's I'm sure it's exciting. not 50-50, but it's very balanced these days, isn't it? Yes, but, that, but uh, that's only recent. Mm. In, the, in the 1990s, it was still all male. A smart move then from Skylar, but it didn't guarantee her success, as she says. My mind uh, was focused on the very fact that if I wanted to make it as a, as a girl in an all-male industry, I would have to be... 120% professional yeah. and 150% perfect in whatever I did. So, you know, to actually be able to compete. Skylar's background is fascinating. She was born into a very musical family. I came to London when I was four years old. Mm. And the, the reason I came with my mother was that my father was the first Indian violinist in a Western orchestra. In 1948, he went to study at the Paris Conservatoire, mm. and then he auditioned in London for a job in London, and he got a rank-and-file position uh, with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And that's when he sent for my mother and myself, and we came to this country by boat, with the entire furniture, including my piano. So you remember oh. that journey? You were old enough to remember? 
Well, I don't remember that journey, but I remember um, seeing my father when I was four years old at Tilbury Docks on the waiting for us because I hadn't seen him for two years. Oh, I bet he'd been... yeah. <laughs> but yes, we came with absolutely every bit of furniture. What an did. achievement for him, though. How did he manage that? He was a marvellous violinist. Yes. He studied in Paris with one of the top teachers, uh, Galamian, and he was a star in India. He used to broadcast in, on All India Radio, and uh, he actually learnt with, uh, I don't know whether you know this um, this family, but uh, Zubin Mehta is a very world-famous conductor, mm-hmm. and his father in India was a violinist, and he taught my dad. At that time, there was a lot of racial prejudice. So my dad had a lot to battle with in those days. I can imagine. Um, yes, but uh, anyway, that's how we turned up here. My audio is, is pretty horrible in this interview, I'm afraid, so I'm trying to edit around it, have you noticed? Here we are talking about the subject that she and Elton took together at the Academy, which was harmony. He was desperately shy. He sat near the window and looked out onto Marylebone Road most of the time. He? he was desperately shy. Yeah, he was. Because this that sort of class was so, what I call, technical. Yes. Um, it was, you know, oral dictation and um, counterpoint, which is, you know, classical Bach stuff. Yeah. And, uh, uh, re- and harmony, really classic harmony, learning figured bass and stuff like that. I mean, it's really, really, um, I mean, it was the groundwork of what, a lot of stuff that I did, but he his mind was in a different musical space, and his memory of how he composes is quite extraordinary and unique because he can sit down and improvise a song at, uh, at the first sight of the words yeah. and remember exactly what he's played. We couldn't do that. I mean, I can improvise, but I can't remember what I did five minutes ago. The idea... <laughs> that he would just take a lyric like I need you to turn to, for example, yeah. bash it out, which you could imagine him finishing that before the time it takes to actually play the song. You know, he's got it all yeah. sorted out in his head. And then yes. write nothing down, write no chords. Nothing's yeah. written on the on the lyric sheets, I don't think, generally at that time. Yeah. And just have the confidence yeah. in himself that he'll look at it next time and have exactly the same set of musical thoughts about well, it. It's just sort of mind-blowing, isn't it? It is. It is mind-blowing. It's quite unique, I think. Yeah. Quite, quite unique. So, conveniently, that's the song that they recorded next at Trident. As I said in the previous episode about these sessions, we now know what order the songs were recorded in and also what was recorded together. And I find that it gives you a real insight into proceedings. For example, to know that they tackled I Need You To Turn To and first episode at Hyenton together. Because they're both two serious, sad love songs. We also get some other insights um, from John's articles, like the fact that it was an electric harpsichord on I Need You To Turn To. Here's me and John talking about that. I'm not a thousand percent sure that Gus remembered that correctly. He certainly spoke about it like like he was there, like like it happened yesterday. Mm. Uh, he he took the time during our discussion to uh, I think even isolate the one speaker. I think he unplugged one speaker in his home studio 
and walked up to the speaker that the harpsichord was in to, and put his ear next to it to sort of double check. It's still an analog instrument. It, I've read a little bit about it after you wrote that because I'd never actually didn't know that such a thing existed and only one right. company ever made them. And they basically have individual pickups on every single harpsichord string, which is still plucked in exactly the same way as a regular harpsichord. Yeah, so it could very well be. It's a nice bit of trivia. If it, if it, it is. Fact, uh, and it makes me wonder whether or not that was the machine that they used um, on Empty Sky as well. Yeah, a different studio, so I assume... Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good point. It sort of seems in reverse, doesn't it? A place like Trident would be more conducive to a, to a beautiful, actual harpsichord. One thing I would say is it's just incredibly almost uh, maybe at the time it wasn't, uh, but it feels quite a hackneyed title and it is very straight ahead. There are a couple of interesting images like the nail to your love that definitely mm. adds a little bit of, um, yeah, the sort of thing that your grandmother might be slightly concerned about. Um, <laughs> but, good way to put it, right. But Elton's writing is so cleverly um, connecting one line to the next the way he does. Yes, yes. The flow is, is dare I say, perfect. It, it's just, I mean, waltzes are that way generally, mm. uh, but Elton was not intimidated by a waltz lyric. And this is what, this is one observation I, I've sort of wondered about Bernie's work overall is that, you know, we know that in later years, Bernie would, suggest what type of music might suit the lyric that he's putting forward. Back at this point, he wasn't doing that. But 
the writing of the lyric forces Elton to do a three, four time song. I'd never heard that. Right. This is the one time that Bernie dictates to whatever degree, even to a small degree, what the music's going to be like. There is a strong rhythm, whereas certain other lyrics from this era, he just belted out a load of syllables and he was just like, oh my goodness, what right. am I going to do right. with that? But whereas this is actually in some sense of form, isn't it? You can hear, I can at least hear the meter just reading the lyric. Maybe that's yeah. just because, you know, you hear the song first. But if I ever had an opportunity to ask Bernie about that, I'd like to, you know, how conscious were you of, of the fact that you were basically asking Elton to write a, a song in three, four waltz time? And this wasn't the only one, but this is the first and, or at least one of the first, and most certainly one of the best examples of it. The other thing in the original lyric sheet that, that one can look at, I think, if one dives through the internet enough, is that I think in Bernie's handwriting, the chorus is actually called a chorus. He uses a sort of bracket that, that covers the chorus stanzas and writes the word chorus to the right of it, mm -hmm. which, again, back in that time, it's the only time I know that that's done where Bernie would have picked out and said, this is the chorus, because this is back in the day when he was writing, quote unquote, lyrical poems or poems themselves, and, and Elton yeah. just gave them structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, overall, this is as close as Bernie was getting at that time to writing a structured song lyric. It is such a genuine lyric as well. It's, it's innocent. But not at all world weary. There's, it's not jaded. It's just extremely earnest and charming, isn't it? It's a you know whatever it was, seventeen or eighteen year old boy yeah. at the time. You know, writing from that part of them. This is one of the first songs I learned. I used to play piano, and this is one of the first songs I learned. And it's just I, I don't know if you had the same experience, but it's just such a, a, a rewarding song to play, a fulfilling song to play on piano. Just the yeah. way it. It flows and the lyrics are so don't get in the way of the music and vice versa. That's so true. And and I bet Paul relished this one. He put this wonderful <gasps> yeah. circular cannon yes. around it. And there's lots of little echoes and builds where he's just found harmony between the different sections of the of the verse that, you know, it's it's wonderful what he's done there. Yeah, there are parts when you feel like he's almost co-writing the song. Yes, you know, this where, is where definitely it, one of those, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, very I special I can't remember stuff. much about Elton's demo, but I, I think it's very simple, isn't it? Uh, I think he does block chords in there in places where it's sort of spelled out a little bit in the, in the final version. Mm. But there also are... You know, he also does spell out lines uh, in the demo as well. I, I think I do remember... Yeah, it's the end of this song that's different uh, from the demo to the final version. Ah, uh, this is right? where I because... get to sound intelligent, isn't it, John? All right, go on. Do so. <laughs> Ready. Gearing myself up. <laughs> Paul Buckluster brought in the Ties de Picardie. Ha ha, I'm now folding my arms and looking very proud of myself. Wow. Which is when a song that's in a minor key resolves in a major key you know so i think it's in e minor this track that's correct it. yes um, and then it it resolves with a nice warm e major chord it's called a ts de picardy and i think i guess My like God. you say that, that that was paul buckmaster's idea yeah it was yeah he just he felt that it was somehow uh, sounded better and who can disagree with him but uh, well, it comes from that sort of baroque school when and the reason they did it is because 
minor chords when left to hang in a large auditorium or in a cathedral would bring about lots of really uncomfortable jarring overtones whereas major chords didn't do that so much so if you were going to make a nice resolved ending to your baroque piece of music then you would then you'd use a major chord oh well done thanks your research was second to none it's fantastic oh that's great i i'm not i'm not kidding that's really really cool thanks john isn't he nice time to move on to the next track which was recorded that wednesday evening first episode at hyenton my favorite song from this album and i've said before my favorite elton song full stop maybe not but this is a really special one i was one as you were one and we were two so much in love forever I love the white socks that you wore But you don't wear white socks no more Now you're a woman I joked about your turned up nose And criticized your schoolgirl clothes But would I then have these roots to love you? You can hear there's quite a lot of gravel in Elton's voice in some of this. Well, it is midnight. Probably by the time he recorded the vocal, it was probably yeah. around midnight. So maybe he was bringing that sort of aspect to it. They probably could carry on later. It was the um, musicians' union rules that stopped the classical musicians. Right. As long as they let the orchestra go, they probably could have. They probably could have gone later. Did they do the vocals? on the day of the tracks? They did the lead vocal at the end of each day for the songs they had recorded that day. And then at the end of the week is when they did the backing vocals for all the songs. I don't know what it is about this song. It's... Oh no, I'm with you. For this album, this is the showstopper for me. This is, if you said pick one song from this album, I, it wouldn't take me two seconds to pick this one. Both uh, for the charming lyrics and this Moog part is unstoppable. The quadrangle sang to the sun And the grace of our feeling And the candle burned low As we talked of the future Underneath the ceiling If you ever get a chance, Neil, to listen to this in 5.1, an actual 5.1. Yes, rather than my simulated version. Go do anything you can to do it. The, the, the Moog in the 5.1 is, it's, it, I can't even describe it. It's, it's so much more than it yeah. is in the stereo mix. Well, even in the stereo mix, it's still pretty magic. It just hangs, it hangs in the air like smoke, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. So what, we've got Elton on piano and vocals, certainly live, well, not vocals live, but he must have been doing a, a guide vocal to this. There's, you know, uh, Skyla uh, would have been there, so she would probably have, yeah, she would have been live, although she wasn't credited on this song, which is just yeah. bizarre to me. 
Especially uh, considering she so was credited for the one that was done earlier on that day. Here's Caleb. J45 is. We're going to have a look. Sounds like an electric sound. Oh no, good lord, look at that, okay. Yeah, it's the acoustic. Wow, you can get one of them for five and a half grand these days if you want. <laughs> Woof. That's an acoustic guitar through a Leslie amp. It's an interesting sound that they, they decided on for that. So yeah, talking about the shimmering guitar part that Caleb plays in, in the song, and again, something that comes in later, right? It doesn't, mm, you don't mm. start the song with it. And it's just, it, it's that much more sort of vital because of it, or it's more noticeable because of the fact that it wasn't there before. Um, yeah, for all, for all the world, it certainly sounds like a guitar pushed through a Leslie. But when I spoke with Gus, uh, listening to this album, and I stopped him and I said, okay, what, what is that sound that I'm listening to, that shimmering guitar sound? He says, and, and I, I apologize in advance to Caleb for this, he says that, that the a guitar is just a smidge out of tune with the piano. And, and so what you get when the piano is playing in sync with the guitar, but the guitar is slightly out of tune, you get sort of what sounds like a chorusing kind of effect. Oh. Uh, or, or, you know, or maybe a phasing. He didn't say phasing. He said chorusing. So mm. I'll just quote what Gus told me. And, and this is exclusive because it's not in my article. <laughs> um, the guitar is just a tad out of tune with the piano. What you get is now what we refer to as chorusing. They're playing almost identical notes, arpeggiated parts. So what's happening is the acoustic guitar is effectively chorusing the piano slightly. Uh, so oh. it makes a sound. Uh, almost like it's going through a Leslie, because that's what a Leslie does. It's it, it, yes, it kind of comes in and out of phase. Yeah. It's a phasing effect. Um, so how fascinating! Um, I'm going to have to dig. And they definitely we'll recorded those and put them in exactly the same location in the stereo field. We can't pick those apart. Right. They are they're stuck yeah. together forever. Those sounds. If um, that is the um, way it was, he's very yeah. specific. So I'm sure yeah. he's not wrong there. Well, it's an interesting, it's not what I expected, I guess. It's, I, I thought he said, sure, we just, we took the Wesley amp and pushed it through it. But no, yeah. he went the other direction. The other thing that Gus had to say about this song that I thought was quite interesting, because of the sparseness of the song and the arrangement, I asked Gus if maybe Elton did do his final vocal live at the same time. Mm. Uh, and Gus again went, got out of his chair, went and unplugged one of his speakers just to check on the side that, that had the music that he was looking for. And he said, no, afterwards, that the Billy vocal was recorded afterwards. And he said, if you listen very closely to Elton's vocal, its timing is not always perfect, which is true. It's a half step or a quarter step or a smidge step behind every now and then. And that's why. Um, okay, so that's the, if you were playing and singing at exactly the same time, then your cues would be exactly. nailed onto the piano, wouldn't right. they? Exactly. That's fascinating. And I thought that was interesting. If, if you listen to it with that in mind, I think you'll see that and it doesn't sound bad. It sounds almost natural, just the way the, the music is. So 
What do you think the lyric is about? Uh, well, there's there's a place in Lincolnshire. I drove through it the other day. I went to the seaside in Lincoln, in the Wolds. Um, as you do. And I, I, as you do. And I drove, we drove through Hainton. H-A-I-N-T-O-N, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bernie had a very long walk to school. I presume he cycled. Um, but Hainton was very close to there. Um, I link this song with Tilby Abbey, which is a song about Bayon's Manor, we know now, don't we? Um, And there are references there to this building, which was at that time um, a ruin, massive Mm -hmm. um, Victorian house, I want to say, might be a little bit earlier than that, a very large house that ended up in ruin and then was um, knocked down not long afterwards after mm-hmm. Bernie was exploring it with presumably Valerie, who <laughs> I'm obsessed with finding and interviewing John. I'm obsessed <laughs> with it. And I, I, oh, I, I've got so many theories. There's a place in Hainton called Hainton Hall, um, which is had a, two people living there who were around about his age and one of them, um, I'm not going to say her name, um, but they're members of the aristocracy. I just wonder, <laughs> did they end up going to school with um, Bernie? And, and is that who this person was that he's writing about? Um, I, I'd love to know. I'm going to dig. I'm going to keep digging. You've got definitely right. a feeling of the urban exploration because he's talking about the quadrangle, um, which yeah. sounds like a part of Bayon's Manor. And then that wild line underneath the ceiling. Well, what ceiling? What about mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, ceiling? Mm-hmm. Like the ceiling of stars? Or right, just, right, right. What is that ceiling? It's such an evocative, strange image to leave you with. And Elton just plonks it there and then just leaves it. It's like, here's a question underneath the ceiling. Right. I think it's to its benefit. It's, it's a way for the listener, the reader, to throw their own interpretation or their own mm. uh, musings. On, on that line. It's it's definitely something that caught my attention when I first heard this song, certainly. And again, I'm look I'm looking at the original lyrics of this and later on in the in the lyric, uh speaking about stars, yes, there is section, a line yes. yeah, that, that Elton crossed out about I, I shall always remember the thrill of the stars. I don't I don't I think that may have been taken out because of the word thrill. I just for some reason that doesn't sort of fit the feel of the rest of the lyric to me. But Yeah, but you've got a song that sort of switches um, from time frame to time frame, but that that is just maybe a little bit too explicit in terms of saying, "Oh, here I am, an older man. I will always." Write. It just feels mm-hmm. like the sort of thing that an, a seventeen-year-old shouldn't be writing. <laughs> well, I I think it was. It always feels to me like it was written about a very important time in Bernie's life. He may have shown even some restraint in the final lyric about that event but yeah uh, better you than me to track down valerie go go for it have <laughs> have fun with it and i look forward to your results i can't even begin to imagine what that kind of process would be like but yeah it's it's a stunning song top to bottom and and yeah. there's three well let's say with diana four players on it you know if you don't if you don't actually include the orchestra and it's just it's just so warm and rich it is the ultimate expression of this album as far as i'm concerned uh, but unlike everything else on the album which does have a pretty straightforward verse chorus here's a bridge um here's an instrumental section this one is 
uncharacterizable in those senses. It's more like Indian Ooh, Sunset, sure. isn't it? It's oh, yeah, movement-based and... You've got sections that sound like they're a comment on a previous section before. That's something I've said in this podcast. I, the, the way it's written, Elton's saying, okay, well, now we're going to be talking about that and, and I'm going to give it <laughs> some gravity and now I'm going to sound wistful and now I'm going to sound lost, mm. you know, and, and, and he really executes it so well and it's so linked to the lyric. Um, it's a beautiful piece of music, one of my favourites. And didn't they do well to hold it over from Empty Sky? Yes, right. To our knowledge, this is the earliest song written that made it to this album by a year yeah. and a half or two years. Yeah, a year and a half. And so if your song didn't exist, I'm not saying this would have been a single or anything, even though I think Elton in, in some interview way back then said he, he because he's known for not knowing what a single is or how to pick one, uh, he, he wanted this as a single at one point and was uh, thankfully talked out of it. But this would have been... If this song had started the album, you know, this would have just absolutely drawn you right in. You couldn't wait to hear the rest of the album if, if this was the opening track. It's that strong. Yeah, I forget what that quote is from, but it's it it's out there somewhere. I can't find it in my notes at the moment. I think it's also from the Paul Gambaccini radio special that I that I quoted from heavily in my part two of the fifty years on uh, series of articles. But I think uh, it's not in that article, but I think it's in the Paul Gamachin thing where he said at one point he just liked the song so much, basically, that he wanted it to be a single. <laughs> I just wish imagine? there were more songs like that in the catalogue. I really do. Because he Open can and do it. exploring and yeah. free of, yes. of yeah. uh, strict meter and, and free of, yeah, unconstrained. I agree. Um, I'm very grateful for the ones we have. And I agree this is sort of the first of a few. But they're all, you know, they're all great. Certainly Indian Sunset being, being a terrific example. Hopefully Elton will have managed a decent night's sleep that Wednesday night. He was back in for the 3pm Thursday afternoon session. It was a bit of a biggie. They were down to record your song and 60 years on, and they had three hours to do that in. How organised must Gus been, and Robin Jeffrey Cable as well, to have got everything ready and everything sounding perfect and these were technically demanding songs your song's got three acoustic guitars in it it's got a harp they're all jangling away and when you play around when you splash around in the 5.1s it's remarkable how distinct all of those sounds are how separated they managed to keep all of those plucked instruments and then when they were laying over that, the Trident piano with its incredible stereo effect that uh, Gus was able to get, he knew how to get a really good sound out of that famous piano. The Trident piano, it was a Beckstein Grand. It's worthy of mention. It was built in 1898, and it was one of the main reasons why musicians loved Trident. You can hear it on so many records from that era, starting with Hey Jude, Beatles recorded at Trident for that song. It's on Life on Mars, played by Rick Wakeman. It's on Seven Seas of Rye, played by Freddie. Perfect Day, um, Without You, You're So Vain, was recorded there. It's got this bright, chimey sound 
The piano apparently had hardened hammers, or they had hardened. So it had this really percussive quality, and it really cuts through recordings. And it needed to be played really hard as well. It had a very heavy action. I would recommend checking out David Bennett Piano on YouTube. He's done an episode recently about that piano. And he plays out some of the songs that share that same distinctive piano sound. It's really interesting to hear them all together. And incidentally, he says in a comment um, that he's posted to his own video that the current American owner of the piano has got into contact with him to let him know that the piano wasn't as badly damaged as people have said back in uh, the 80s when it was moved out of Trident and that it's played regularly and still sounds great. So that's really nice to know. Here's a bit more of a taste of Trident then, Skylar Kanga talking to me about her memories of recording the Elton John album. Sorry for my horrible audio quality. Well, um, I had a roadie, so the heart was delivered. And we went. To, I went down into this dark staircase into this small studio. And um, it was just strings and harp. I was on the right-hand side of the door. The strings were on the other side. And at the time, um, there were no... Nothing like wearing headphones, we call them cans, nothing like that. So we had these little speakers next to us oh, on the floor. yes. Because cans weren't really the thing in the 70s. You know, we had speakers. <laughs> so that's why it's all a bit loose. I asked her about 60 Years On, um, which was the other song recorded alongside your song, and whether it was stressful for her playing that solo harp part that Paul Buckmaster had written for her? I suppose so. I mean, I can't actually remember doing it. Um, but I can remember do. I just read it, uh, you know, because I think he'd just written it out, so yes. that was fine. But the thing was that your song, like, uh, he'd written absolutely masses of notes, I seem to remember, and I had to sort of thin it out a bit because it was a keyboard part, really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I remember you know, sort of thinking, oh, I'm going to have to give him the, the gist of what he's written rather than try and play every note because um, it would just be too much on the harp because it's not like a piano. You can't, you, can't, you know, play fistfuls of notes like you can on a piano. You, you have to allow the thing to ring yes. because it's a resonant instrument. So, you know, yeah. I, I seem to remember doing a bit of improv on, on your song, definitely. <laughs> As you'll hear when you listen to the instrumental that I've mixed together of your song, there's some incredibly dense interlacing between the acoustic instruments, even with Skylar taking out some of the notes to make her part work on the harp. In fact, towards the end of the second verse, it very nearly crumbles. Here is Elton introducing your song on the radio in Chicago in 1970 with his own version of what the song is about. While we're on the subject of this album, which is called Elton John on Uni Records, uh, why don't you take a moment here and pick, pick one of the songs that we can listen to? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. Um, hmm. well, I, I'll pick your song because that probably has this most story behind it. Bernie was... It's about his girlfriend at the time, and he was 
going through it was just he was drastically in love with her you know and and i i seized upon this song i said hello torpin you struck again you know this is i knew what it was about immediately and uh, it's you know he was very hung up on her and it's it's all over now but it's you know i bernie and i've got to know each other sort of very well we've known each other for two years and all these lyrics well, some of these lyrics i can read him like a book you know and that as soon as i saw that i thought right i know what that's about <laughs> so there it is from the horse's mouth <laughs> that's funny right and and bernie completely denies this and it doesn't seem like he has an agenda in denying it it just seems like because in a different interview when that quote is presented to bernie bernie you know says no but first episode at hyenton was most definitely about a person, and that person was most definitely called Valerie. But uh, in this case, uh, Elton has it wrong, uh, and it's not about anyone in particular. Uh, curious, very curious. It is interesting. I think um, it's an attempt to write an every man love song, isn't it? That it's applicable to everyone. So, it, 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 unlike Hyenton, right. which is all about, as I said, it was about urban exploration, but it was about other forms of exploration as well, right. of course. Right. Um, you know, yes, we, as you said, we can try to apply it to ourselves, but it's quite esoteric what's going on there. But although there's some quirky, there's a lot of quirkiness in your song, it's mm. certainly designed to be taken on by the general public, isn't it? Right, not too specific, although mm. with some very specific images in it. Uh, again, thinking back to like the first time I can remember ever hearing this song, you know, kicked off the moss. It's just such a evocative image and yeah. uh, sort of sticks with you. The song has certainly become a song for everyone. The, the your is all of us. Mm -hmm. um, how sort of intentional that was in the writing of the lyric, it's hard to say, but it certainly works in that regard. Everyone can identify, you know, or if they choose to, everyone can identify with, with um, either person in the song, the singer or the person that's being sung to. Yeah. Uh, as we all know, when we go to an Elton John concert, it's, it's you know, to heck with the other 15,000 people in the auditorium. This is my song. He wrote this for me or he's playing it tonight just for me. It's just such and a special. It's not it's, it, it's not just in the lyrics, which seem to point, you know, a long way into the future. The music, the fact that Elton still gets to sing this in E flat and <laughs> and it and is pretty much comfortable with almost all of it. Uh, it's. It was one of the master strokes of his career, wasn't oh, it? That's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But now he does it right. He doesn't go up a whole lot in the No, in it's the actually melody. quite yeah. limited in there's yeah. a couple of moments of it, mind, I hope you don't mind is pretty right, high. Right. But yeah. it's not that high. He can certainly sing it even now. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, it's it's a It worked out well. Uh, it did well, yes. <laughs> we could say it did in many, many different ways. Um <laughs> But yeah, this is from from what the the track sheets tell us. This is the first song uh, recorded on the final day of recording, uh, where they tackled one, two, three, four, five songs on the last day. Uh, wow. So they really crammed it in. Again, I wonder if that was uh, what they planned to do to do so many songs on the final day. I don't know. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, somewhere. Shortly after three o'clock in the afternoon of January twenty second, nineteen seventy, they tackled was you know what is obviously the signature song for Elton John's career at the age of twenty two, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, 
we take it for granted because we've loved him for so long and this music is such a part of the fabric of our lives but if you stop and think as to what you were doing when you were 22 years old <laughs> or writing the lyric at the age of 19 i mean it's mind-boggling i i couldn't I couldn't match my clothing at 22. I couldn't, I couldn't coordinate my wardrobe at 22. I couldn't, you know, <laughs> I, I, I had, I had very little going for me at that age. I don't think Elton was that great with the coordinating of the wardrobe. <laughs> well, not for lack of trying, but no, that's true. that's true. That's a good point. Maybe I picked the wrong imagery to sell my point. Uh, but, but it just, it's, Hello, I'm I'm Reg Dwight. I'm 22 years old. I've just written, you know, a song that will stand the test of time. That will outlive him. I've now mm. changed personas in this thing. It will outlive the writer. It will outlive you and I, the listeners. It's remarkable.
this is my mix which exposes the wonderful interplay between all of the rhythmic elements mm. that Paul put in, including, I think, three acoustic guitars. Is that right? Uh, it's three. That's correct. There's a 12 string there's, and two acoustics. Yes. And then you've got Skylar. She's uncredited, but she's there adding <laughs> another element. Yeah, we've got two bassists. You think right. Herbie was there, uncredited. I mean, there's a string bassist. I just, mm. I assume that's Herbie. I just, I guess I want it to be him because I love him so much. So yeah, I, I, I want to give him too. credit whenever <laughs> I possibly can. Bernie really gets the idea of nervous first love right here, doesn't it? You've got Elton as sort of a stuttering mess. Yes trying to get things right but just not sure and if i gonna oh i've started saying one thing but i'm now gonna say this and i'll come back to that idea in a minute it's that kind of thing how he managed to express that lyrically and musically for that matter between the two of them it's quite something isn't it also in addition to that i agree in addition to that the little laugh that elton gives if i was a sculptor mm. <laughs> but then again no it, interesting choice I, I, and I don't mean that in any way other than it's a great choice. And it's, it's again, almost a hook. You know, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so a true. thing that stands out and remembers. But the interesting to me thing is if you put on your best headphones and crank this up, you will hear him do a, a chuckle in another part of the song. But Gus turned it down. Oh. Uh, Gus potted it down, but it's it's there just just in a teensy these bit. Things I do, you see, I've forgotten if they're green or they're blue. You know, this is this is about as close to train spotting as you know as you can possibly get. Uh, just count the chuckles in your song, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm not saying I'm proud of this. But it's something that caught my attention and I think is really And they definitely thought that, that one was good, but yes, two was two pushing was too it much. a little bit. Exactly. It's just, it's funny that that decision had to be made. And I wonder if at any point Elton said, wait a minute, Gus, what, what happened to the other one? <laughs> why, did, why didn't you? <laughs> it's quite something for him to put that in the vocal performance. It's, again, as you say, it's a hook and it's not something that people would have done a great deal before that. I guess the Beatles would have thrown some details like that in, but in a, but not in a, in a ballad. Maybe I don't know. I, I mean, in in such a sort of soft, mm. tender song, mm. I could see. Uh, again, this is getting very, very in the weeds, but I can see him doing something similar to this vocally, in Pilot or the Cage or something again with a beat or with, to add sort of syncopation almost to it. But mm. to put it in as a interlude or whatever you want to call it in, in a ballad, I just uh, great. I mean, great choice. Uh, is that something he worked out in the studio? Is that something he did when he played the song out live before he ever went to the studio? Certainly not on the demo, is it? State. It's not in the demo. That's true. Uh, and well, obviously it had a few months to have the song just take. Neither is the, the, the intro. The intro on the demo is obviously different than the Yeah, intro. much more basic. It doesn't have yeah, the riff just block that we're chords. used to. Yeah. Mm. I asked Gus about that, and Gus said that the, the riff, the single note then, was something that Elton worked out in the studio in Trident as they were recording the, the song. And I think that's borne out by the, the fact that this is, what did I say? Yeah, this is take three of three, right? So... They, they ran through the yes. song two times before. And again, I love the fact that we know this. 
And I wonder if that intro line was developed during those takes. Mm. I, it's I that bit is Elton through and through, isn't it? There's no question that that that's been authored for him by Buckmaster, is there? That yeah, that's his. Oh, interesting. Uh, musical inflection right there. You mean but Paul would have said Elton do? I think do there it are some way? notes. I think there are some notes in this piano arrangement that that come from Paul. Um, oh, I never in thought the of third that. and fourth verse, um, there are some moments where it goes do 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 like that on the piano, mm-hmm. um, which just doesn't feel like something Elton would do, and it's so well ingrained within the texture of the music that it feels like it has to be something oh. that would have come from the bottom up rather than Elton just inhibiting, which he will have been doing enormously himself, working alongside all of those rhythm instruments, including um, the as you've termed it when we've discussed it, the everybody's talking guitar. <laughs> I, I have to confess that I stole that from Greg Penny. Uh, uh, did you? Yeah, it's a great <laughs> that's, line. That's what he calls it. And it's, yeah, it fits perfectly. Once you hear it that way, it's, that's all you can hear. As I've said, the second song of the afternoon session was 60 Years On, which Skylar also laid her harp on to. Skylar's confirmed, at least for the songs that she recorded, that Elton didn't record piano with the orchestra. Oh, no, no. Everything had been laid down before that. We were just overdubbing on, on, on everything that had been done. So for your song, is that you're thinking? Yeah, I mean, you could, they, you could, yes, for all of it. Um, he, he, was, he never played. We didn't, never recorded anything live with him or the rhythm section there. They'd all be, they'd done that on another track. Okay. And then we had speakers next to us obviously with no voice in it yeah just just the sort of basic rhythm stuff guitar and a bit of drums or something and the poor conducting that was it skylar very gamely went through her records which she's a hero for keeping to give us a bit of information about the sessions that she worked on i found it what have you found there i have found that i was at trident on um made me laugh actually on the um 21st of january 1970 from 9 till 11 p.m and also on the thursday the 22nd of january from 3 till 6 p.m yeah. the, the book the, the contractor was david katz whom i knew anyway and for the total two sessions that i must have done everything on i got paid 24 pounds <laughs> that's a i don't know how much does that work out these days i'm gonna to have to work that out i will do that i'm gonna put that into an inflation calculator well but, i think the session fee was something like six pounds you know or, or perhaps it was nine pounds that by then yeah and and the portage must have been about two pounds or something like that so well, you would have passed, would you have passed the porterage on to your... My roadie, who was called Rudy at the time. Rudy, the roadie. Yes. £24. Well, well, we got our money's worth out of you, I think. I think you did. <laughs> in case you're wondering, £24 in 1970 is £370 today. Of course, I did ask Skylar about meeting Elton again after their shared harmony session several years before. And I started by asking about what other session work she'd had up to that point. One of them was James Taylor. But here's one that wasn't on Discogs. 
I toured with the Bee Gees. Did you do that alongside Paul Buckmaster then? I don't know whether Paul Buckmaster did it. I can't remember that. But I toured Europe and and UK with the Bee Gees, and I did quite a lot of recording sessions and broadcasts with the Bee Gees. Oh. And the MD was Bill Shepherd. Yes. Yeah, so you were you were busy then around about that time. You were you were in work, but then you came yeah. along to this session with Paul Buckmaster, and then the story is that. Elton had to introduce himself to you because presumably from the booking sheet that you were handed and turning up on the day, you wouldn't yeah. have had any inkling that this was Reg no. White. Tell us a bit no, about that. How did that go? I did. Oh, it, it was fine. But, but but the thing is, you see, I hadn't seen him since he left when he was 16. And, and I did this recording when I was 24. Yes. I hadn't seen him in the middle of that at all. So, um, and we were quite busy in those days with all sorts of things. And um, and when Paul turned up with the music, I, obviously I remembered Paul from Junior Academy. Mm. And then Elton came down at the end of the sessions and said, oh, hi, Skylar, do you remember me? And of course I remember him, but he wasn't one of my people that I worked with at the, in the Junior Academy because he was another pianist. Yes. You're not so, going to be accompanying you know, Elton, are you? No, no, exactly. And and also he'd left long before I'd left the Junior Academy. So, um, you know, we hadn't seen each other for ages. And then, of course, you know, um, and then it all transpired and it all came back to me that, you know, all our friends were on this, Paul Buckmaster and Pete Robinson and, and stuff like that. And um, And so it went on. Here's John and I talking about Skylar's third track then and the second track tackled that Thursday, 60 Years On. So we know now that... It is referenced in your article, isn't it, John, that this section was just a throwaway bit of enjoyment for Paul and the string players, um, which Gus chose to append to the song. I'm not 100% sure how much the string players enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I think they were ferociously confused as to what Paul was trying to communicate. But yeah, depending on the story that you hear, uh, one story is that a one of the tape machines uh, broke and uh, had to be repaired while the musicians were already in the studio. Mm-hmm. So there was downtime. And just a side note, one of the tape ops on this album was David Henschel. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, he was a trident fixture. His legend later looms large in, in Elton's career uh, and early work. But I just, I like the idea that Dave Henschel is in in a sequestered room because, you know, trident, there was the studio itself. And then up on the second floor was the window looking over the studio. And then somewhere else, you wouldn't be able to see where the actual tape machines were, was, was Dave Henschel. But anyway, uh, the story is that one of the tape machines broke. While they were fixing it, they had downtime with the full orchestra in front of them. So Paul just said, just came up with this idea. He pointed to, you know, one string player or maybe one section of string players and just said, okay, play, play this. I don't even know if he said a note. He may have just sort of vocalized. And then he, I think he waved his hands or his baton to sort of suggest the sort of ebb and flow or the shimmer effect or whatever. Yeah, the vibrato of the strings. Yeah. And then and just then brought them in one by one, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I I don't know if I don't know if Paul told me this or if this is just my imagination talking, but I kind of feel that these very sort of 
British orchestral musicians who were already possibly wondering what they were doing on a quote-unquote pop album uh, were even more curious as to what Paul was actually doing. But Paul had zero plans of this being part of any song, let alone the beginning of 60 Years On. Yeah, it was just an experiment, in a sense, a tribute to Ligeti, the, the composer yes. that he fell in love with, if not before, but certainly during the watching of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's this effect of right. layering up certain notes and really making this discomforting wall of noise out of just not that many notes, but just picking the right ones. And yes, it exactly. It creates yeah. this wash effect, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a, there's a dissonance to it. And if you've ever had the pleasure, and I put that in quotes for my, myself, of listening to Paul's band, the Third Ear Band, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of dissonance in, in Paul's canon. It's very interesting to hear the full piece as well. Uh, as I say in my article, what is it? In, in the actual album versions, I think 40 seconds, and I think the full version is 60, something like that. Um, whatever it is, it's 20 seconds less than what was recorded. And yeah, it's interesting to have and interesting to listen to, but it's, it's more concise and more, um, it fits in better to have it be edited the way it is. Mm. But it's really interesting to hear it. Um, how, how did Paul feel about it? Because a lot of people associate that, um, that little idea with him as an arranger. Yet, although it was his idea, it wasn't his idea to put those two pieces together like that. Right. So it's a good question. And, and uh, to me, it sort of equates to uh, an actor who, who starts out in a, in a very specific role that he's then famous for for the rest of his life and almost can't break out of. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's all like uh, let's, uh, Mark Hamill with Luke Skywalker, you know, the, the freaking, you know, the youngest kid in the world mm. uh, goes into this massive identifying role that he will it will be the first line of his obituary all those kinds of things and mark and many of the other actors of that of that ilk uh fought against it a lot at first they they weren't pleased at all that they were typecast or put in this this sort of uh barrel almost or or cage uh to to reflect back on an earlier lyric hmm. um paul was not at all pleased uh, that that was what happened. He he would have preferred, Gus would have said to him during the sessions, Paul, could you please write an intro for 60 Years On? I feel like it needs one. And Paul would have theoretically sat down and done just that. Mm. But without Paul's knowledge, I think, uh, Gus did this. Uh, I'm sure Paul heard it in playback, but um, it was a surprise to Paul and he was not at all happy with it. I mean, the fact that it was used uh, in this way and, and I think that dissatisfaction or that irritation was further emphasized every time a fan came up and said, oh my God, Paul, the intro to 60 years on, it's genius, how did you ever, you know. You can't blame him <laughs> really, can you? <laughs> no, no, I totally sympathize with him. I think later on in life, uh, he, he got used to it, I guess, yeah. or, or he appreciated, you know, there's nothing he could do about it. And, and he came to some sort of terms with it, some sort of peace with it. It's still his music in the end, but uh, it must be well, a it's bit just, jarring and galling. I just, yeah, um, I can't equate it with anything in my life, but, it, you know, I, I've gone up to Paul Buckmaster, you know, and I've said, oh my God, Paul, <laughs> it's just great. It's just, you know, I, I love what you did on 60 Years on Intro, uh, not knowing. Um, <laughs> so, 
so you know my my communication was very sincere and heartfelt uh, but it just didn't line up with with Paul's experience and it's just it's, it's a fascinating sort of like twist of a fate almost in a way or a turn of the cards in a way yeah I, I love the organ part that he wrote um, and you can hear that in the 5.1 because um, yes. it's right under Elton's vocals, so it's, some yes. of it gets buried. But there's so there's almost a little bit of humour in some of the note choices towards the end of that. It is, it, I don't know, lyrically, um, again, a little bit over-serious, perhaps, for mm-hmm. a young man to be writing, trying to <laughs> channel a 60- or 80-year-old person. I've never quite worked right. out how old that person's supposed to be. I don't think it's right. 60. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I, I've always wondered if it was a Britishism. Does 60 years on mean on from the time that you've written this or 60 years on just means this person is 60 years old. Yeah, I, d- I don't um, think it... Well, because obviously the uh, uh, Madison Square Garden gig would suggest that it was the latter. But I think when writing it, he was thinking about an 80-year-old. Yeah. That's my reading. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. Um, but yeah, either way, it's... I mean, it, he, he didn't go to the when I'm 64 route. No, he, <laughs> he didn't. Totally yeah. different direction. Uh, maybe he... Maybe that's that song, you know, somehow put the thought in his mind to do something like mm-hmm, this. Maybe it did. But yeah, it's quite serious. And yet for me, again, as an American, I did have an opportunity to go to Lincolnshire once and be driven around by a, by a fan up that way, who sadly is no longer with us and, and was just a wonderful man. Uh, but there are certain areas of Lincolnshire, generally around sort of cemeteries or not cathedrals, but sort of, you know... Very large, inexplicably large yeah. churches. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. That you can't help but have this song in your mind. You, you just feel like you are walking in the same footsteps as, as a young Bernard Taupin would have, you know, and musing about the... It just It's just incredibly evocative. Mm. And again, along with the music, I just... It's a great soundtrack to, for an American to play in in his head while whilst walking through you know, certain parts of Lincolnshire. It's some odd imagery again in there. It, 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 it doesn't locate itself exactly in Lincolnshire, right. as he never does. He never really puts you on firm footing, does he, Bernie? Because you've got Mag- Magdalena. Red for fighting, yes, yeah. that one, there's not much question about, about where it. we are there. We're in Market Raisin then, aren't we? Um, but magdalena playing the organ i suppose that could be it's just it's not quite the name that i would be expecting from yes, someone oh, in right, the church right. it's it's you know margaret's playing the organ not magdalena <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point it also strikes me on 60 years on that that again the harp is so prominent on this song and yet this is another song where skylar kanga is is not given credit 
I did talk to Skylar about this, by the way. Here's what she had to say. I know, but it's ridiculous because it's a huge solo. <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever. I just hope that you got your credits for it from the uh, Musicians' Union and everything like that. Well, I, I made sure I told them that I was on it, so uh, yes. OK, then. Time for the evening sessions. Three hours... 7 till 10pm, and they managed to record three songs. Take Me to the Pilot, Grey Seal and Border Song. All of them have got Barry Morgan on drums, but there were three different bassists for these tracks, apparently. Alan Wayhill on Pilot, Herbie Flowers on Grey Seal, and Dave Richmond on Border Song, which seems a little bit odd. But still, there are also five different guitarists in over the session. You've got Pilot with Alan Parker on acoustic and Caleb on electric. And Caleb's on Grey Seal as well, along with Les Thatcher. And then Border Song's got two acoustic guitarists, Clive Hicks and Colin Green, just like your song did. So here then is my instrumental butchering of Take Me to the Pilot. When you extract the centre channel, you quite cleanly remove the vocals and you also remove... Caleb's doubling of the orchestra in the solo. So I made some decisions here. I put the piano on the left, I put the orchestra in the middle, and then I put Caleb's funky rhythm part on the right, which does sort of squash the orchestra a bit, especially towards the end, but it's so good to be able to highlight Elton and Caleb like that. There are two separate channels that include backing vocals, and one of them is shared with Caleb's channel, so it's out there on the right. And the other is on a channel alongside a 12-string, what sounds like a 12-string acoustic guitar. Um, and I've put that as far left as I felt I could get away with. There's absolutely loads to listen out for here. I love this edit. You can hear Elton tapping his foot as he records the piano. You can hear some wonderful piano playing throughout, just awesome. You can pick out the individual backing voices. There's such an odd mesh of different types of voices here. And then you've got the joy of hearing Caleb being extraordinarily funky throughout and then shredding in the outro. Enjoy.
There you go. Unfortunately, after this point in my conversation with John, I lost my good quality audio recording of myself. I've bought a decent microphone since then, by the way. So that means I'm going to be cutting in and out a little bit to try to cover it. Um, Sorry, I'm ruining the magic here. Anyway, here we are talking about those overdubs in the piano on Pilot. Gus talked to me about this a great deal, and I I did my best to condense it in the article on eltonjohn.com. I hope I explained it without confusing people or over explaining it. But yeah, and it's something that I didn't notice until I was preparing to talk to Gus about the Black Album in 1990, whatever. Also, this is another one of those things where Gus's memory is a little bit different than what I think actually happened, because mm. Gus said that he put the overdub piano on actually at a later date, um, but there was no later date to do that. So I'm not quite sure. And, and he said, if you listen closely, the EQ on that on the overdub piano was different than the than the piano on that was played on the actual basic track. Mm. which actually I agree with. It is a slightly brighter sounding um, yes. or, or darker. One, one is brighter, one is darker. But uh, he thought that what that was, was they were recording another song later and the piano was EQ'd differently for that later song. And then they, they overdubbed and, and didn't change the EQ. Maybe it's a little bit of both. I mean, they recorded two songs after Pilot that same day or maybe on the Friday when they went in for the backing vocal overdubs and other things, maybe that's maybe that's the piano was still there, so maybe that's yeah. when they did it and the EQ is different. That's possible. It's incredibly dense piece of music, this, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good a good word to use. It's uh, sonically, it's right you know it's right in the thick of it, as it were, uh, yeah. most definitely. Uh, you know, how many cellos are on this thing? What did, what did we say? Uh, Twelve. So if you're going to put 12 cellos on a song, you know, there's not much room to maneuver, as it were. No. Uh, and then you've got Caleb duplicating the cello line with his guitar, mm. uh, which Caleb is very, very proud of. And I'm sure Paul was, too, uh, because that just wasn't done. It wasn't done before. I'm not sure how often it was done after. Yeah, um, it makes this wonderful, slick sound, doesn't it? And it's very melodic, really in contrast to the... Um, the arrangement of the strings in the first and the second verse, which is very choppy and aggressive, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, um, quite, I am the walrusy. Same same right. sort of approach right. as you also hear in Bad Side of the Moon. Lots of really choppy, angry yeah. little strikes that cut in and out, similar to Madman itself as well yes. later on. Yeah, and and to get very esoteric about it, uh, Hell, the the outtake that that's never been released uh, from Made in England. Uh, Paul's work on that, similar, uh, very choppy, very rhythmic. It's um, Brian Wilson that called Good Vibrations his pocket symphony. And I, if any mm. Elton John song was going to be a pocket symphony, it's either this or it's um, Border Song. They've got a lot of different elements. It's a ride, isn't it, this tune? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a full band with a full not with a full orchestra, I shouldn't say that, but with a very heavy, you know, sounding orchestra, even though it's primarily cellos. And, uh, and then you've got the, the backing vocalists as well um, and, mm. and a percussion part. So, yeah, there, there's not much left out of Pilot, which, you know, again, suggests that maybe this is why they couldn't nail it the first day. Maybe it was just too big a, 
a beast. Too big a yeah. beast. Yeah, exactly. Although, uh, saying this as I'm looking to the track sheet, and even though they're working on a 16 track on the last day of recording, I think they only use eight tracks. So it's, you know, they've got one for backing vocals, congas, bass, and drums all on nine, nothing on 10, electric guitar on track 11, I mean, totally skipping over tracks two through eight, acoustic guitar on 12, one part of the stereo piano on 13. And the other on 15. Uh, the other on 15, and the in vocal, the middle is the, the middle. lead vocal. Which, Strings on whatever. 16. I can't Strings believe that's 16. true. I don't, I don't think that's true. And then lead guitar also on 15, where, where, the, where one of the piano tracks is. No, I, I actually kind of do, because the strings would have all been... I mean, again, I think the only strings on there were cello. So they would... They would mm, and I true. think Paul was saying, let's just, you know, we don't need a stereo spread on this in, in this particular song. We're using them as a force, like you were saying yeah, earlier. Yeah, 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 you're right. So I, I agree with what I'm looking at. It's just... Um, Kind of, it's weird, and the fact that a song that we're describing as sort of big in its way or dense, as you say, uh, honestly, is just a, an eight-track song. I love Elton and Caleb doing their thing, and mm -hmm. it, underneath all of that, it's a really groovy piece of music, and Elton and Caleb doing what comes natural to them, just really slotting around each other fantastically. Yeah, you know that, that this is a song that they, you know, had run through many times before live, um, you know, and, and in previous studio work and so on. So it's so uh, different you know. in this shape, though, isn't it? it, it oh, yes. It, you know, that slow, um, ponderous version that they did at Olympic. Um, and then the demo itself has got nothing in common with anything, really. And that this was only ever executed <laughs> in this manner in this studio on that day and also obviously when they did it right. in australia they, even right. no they never tried to do it like this again did they right if you saw if he performed the song live up until australia um it wasn't this right no. correct um i've <laughs> I, just out of the blue i've i've uh, i might be telling a tale out of school on this one i might not but again uh, to refer back to that Paul Buckmaster celebration of life that I was at, Bernie Taupin was also there. Uh, and and you have not lived until you've sat in the control room of Capitol Records Studio A, uh, listening to Elton in 5.1 with Bernie, watching Bernie listen to his stuff for the first time in 5.1. He had never heard it in 5.1 before. And his jaw was on the floor. He, he, after every song, he turned around, swiveled his chair around, and applauded Greg Penny, who, who was obviously mixed to those songs. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and uh, so one of the songs was Pilot. Um, and during the... <laughs> we're all listening to it, and during the na-na-na-na-na-na-na, Bernie pipes up and says... Oh, those are the best lyrics I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, similar to what you were saying about Paul um, having to endlessly suffer the questions over 60 years on's arrangement, Bernie's had to endlessly suffer questions over right. the meaning of these lyrics, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think what's been said is, is all that needs to be said. No one has any clue. Uh, and it's become, you know, a, a source of humor, basically. Um, <laughs> and I, if the writer can't explain it, then, you know, that's all that needs to be said, really. Well, 
I'd, I'd like to rise to a challenge, John. <laughs> I, I, the one thing that strikes me about it is that there's... So, at this point, I rambled on and on for a while. Poor John. I really feel for him having to listen to it all. For you guys, I'm going to try to be a little more succinct. I'm going to summarise my thoughts a little bit. I like this lyric. I think it's um, not entirely plausible what Bernie says about it being a series of nonsense syllables that didn't really mean anything. I'm sure that he must have had some sense of what he was writing about. If you feel that it's real, I'm on trial and I'm here in your prison. In other words, if what I'm saying is true, then at some level I'm being watched and I'm being judged. I'm a coin in a mint. I'm dented and spent. I'm a part of the system. I'm enslaved. And when you look at things in a certain way through a glass eye, you see that the seat of this power, all of this power is a force for evil, for danger. And yet... He asks to be taken to this leader, the pilot of the soul. Bernie would like to meet him in his chamber, not in the control room, not in the cockpit or whatever, in his chamber, because it seems to me as though he wants to strike some sort of a deal to gain some sort of control, perhaps. Then, well, the second verse just confuses things, as it often does with Bernie, brings in a load of biblical imagery he throws around the idea that god if it is god that we're talking about here is young god is a virgin and god is a woman and then he says clearly that you can't trust what you're told because this whole song is about not knowing it's about what's beyond the curtain and in that sense it really makes it the sibling of the next song that they recorded in that evening session, Grey Seal. Here's John again. And we're saying it was the first song recorded in the evening session. So that makes sense. You know, you have a nice curry dinner, uh, <laughs> you know, come back and just launch into this thumping, almost wall of sound piece of music. It's, yeah. uh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then straight <laughs> in, uh, we're almost in freakout territory with Grey Seal. Why does it never light on my lawn? Why does it rain and never say good day to the newborn? It is one of Paul Buckmaster's greatest achievements in his perception. He just loved what he did with this track. He liked also the song as it was and, and the story that it told. Um, he envisioned a sage or wise man in Native American culture who was known as Grey Seal. Have a listen to this that thing yeah it's in my mix it's very very prominent but it's not the same when you hear it in the uh, normal 2.1 mix yeah yeah yeah
Come on. Oh, Great even tune. that part at the end. Oh my goodness! It's, yeah, yeah, they, they I, dropped that out to... on the original, but that's uh, yeah, exactly. Still there, um, I'm glad the we, we took the time to listen to this. This is just uh, I'm smiling. You know, <laughs> the Black Album as an album, you know, I, I, I've heard a number of times, and and that's fine. But Gracio is is a special track that I don't listen to as often as I have others. Yeah, yeah. Everything that Paul brought to it, and and the vibraphone player, if that was written out by Paul or not, um, it just it just you know, it's one of the better outros, I think, of an Elton song that that there is. Yeah, I mean it's pretty loungy. It, 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 of all of the songs that Paul ever did for Elton, this is the the sort of most sounds nice of them, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose so. Actually. It's That's pretty loungy, um, but it doesn't point. make me love it any less. I think it's glorious. What an effort. So now we're up to the last song of the last session of the last day, Thursday. I, I imagine this was by design that they didn't intend to carry on onto Friday with the recording of basic tracks. So this is Border Song. And presumably they were already fairly sweet on the idea of Border Song being the first single. And so this was an important one to be leaving right to the end. John and I started off by discussing what we made of it being released as the single. I was all, I was surprised and I've spoken to Stuart Epps about this and said, yeah. you know, it seemed an odd choice. And he said it wasn't an odd choice at all because... I think you've got to put yourself in nineteen late nineteen sixty nine and just Mm -hmm. this was a cool song, definitely cooler than your song. It may not have been as it was more hip. It was more hip, wasn't it? And I I think that they were trying to go for that, and and I think it was a cool decision as well. I I remember my exposure to Elton John came first from the Captain Fantastic album, which my parents had, and they also had Greatest Hits. Um, one, oh, okay, um, sure. which has your song on it, and it has Border Song, and the only songs on there that had 1969 credit were those two songs, and so I didn't have um, a discography at the time, and I was uh, presumed that there was an album that was composed entirely of something songs, and that, that I needed to get that album because <laughs> the, the two songs with the most interesting <laughs> arrangements out of all of them, and they, I still would say that they are, were the something songs so yeah and i loved this tune and i remember football training on like a tuesday evening and this song was on the radio completely inexplicably and and my dad was trying to get me to leave the car to go and do the football training and i was and like we were parked in a really awkward place and this was on the radio and i was like no let, let's listen to this song you yeah, know that's my memory of this one it's the song that made me realize that I have got a lot of work to do because I've got Mm. to understand what this music is and how to access it.
it builds, obviously. This is a building song. We started with a piano vocal intro, simple thing, and and then a light sort of arrangement coming in, and then all of a sudden now we're full blast. Yeah. And then you, it, it is like you're crossing the Atlantic and you start very much in an English church, but by the end, you could definitely be on the other side of the pond, couldn't you? Yeah, I suppose so. I think probably as close as you're going to get, given given the, the ingredients to the song, the, the people mm. that are involved in the song. Yeah, I yeah, okay, I can I can agree with that most definitely. It's um, we need some clapping though. America, the American gospel <laughs> church, you need you need you need some rhythmic clapping involved, and there isn't that on this song. But short of that, yes, <laughs> I love the idea that. I'm assuming it's Paul, but maybe not. Maybe it was Gus or, or someone else that said, OK, we're going to have backing singers on this uh, and, and they're going to do these parts. But, you know, we need something extra. And the call was made to the Barbara Moore singers who were quite successful already on their own. They were a busy group of people doing sessions all over the place in, yeah. in England. But to this day, if you just said, Barbara, I, I'm an Elton fan and I, I love Water Song. That's all you need to say. She's just, she's off and running. She's over the moon. She's just saying, oh, bless you. Thank you so much. I had so much fun on that session. It was, you know, Elton or Reg or whatever she calls him. You know, this, I mean, she, she just, it feels like it was a highlight of her vast career. Elton did the game with her, didn't he? Was that the connection? Is that what yeah, there is a connection through that. I don't know if Barbara Moore actually worked on that track, but I think he walked by in the same studio she was working on something else, yeah. and he walked by, and there was an open door, and they started talking. Maybe is that yeah, that's, that that's kind right? of how I remember it as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, another sort of little bit of kismet there, a little fortuitous timing there. Uh, even though this is the only song she was ever used on, which is in a sense a shame, but oh my goodness, yeah, what a song to have. That mix you just played is is just perfect because every layer that you hear your eyes widen even more or your heart melts a little bit. Again, like I was saying, there's no wrong mix of this. Certainly isolating the orchestra or just taking both the, the backing vocals and the orchestra out and just having the, sort of the band play. Yeah, and the rhythmic element the, is so strong. Yeah, so. yeah. And that's when the organ sort of comes in. Brian D's organ comes in a little bit more. It's amazing, actually, across the whole album, how important the acoustic guitar is to drive yes. the album. It's, it's yes. almost more there than the piano in, at certain places. At it? times, it is. Yes, for a pianist's album, that's, that's true. In a perfect world, and I, I can't speak for what Elton's management is ever going to do or has done or will do or might do, but as a fan, if there was ever an opportunity to release the Black Album pulled apart, yes, please. And, and this song is sort of the one that sort of seals it for me. If all you do is Elton's vocal and the orchestra throughout the whole album or in the songs that don't have the orchestra, other isolated instruments. It holds up. It absolutely stands solid. And I, I think it would be, I would buy it. That's all I can say. I would buy it in a heartbeat. I, I look at it slightly differently. I'd want to hear an instrumental version of, you know, an instrumental mix of something. That's kind of what I've done in many cases here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's to remove the vocal, which is the highly yeah. familiar element, and then to see what's underneath. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I can move with that. But some of the vocals are outstanding as well. Elton's vocals. I, he looks back and says that he sounds like a weedy child sometimes, right. doesn't he? Right. Well, I don't hear that at all. I hear someone with 
incredible elasticity in their voice yeah. and yes. the, the most perfect pitching, really weird phrasing, but fascinating phrasing. I just love his voice in this era. The nuances are that you don't always necessarily hear unless you listen for them or pull it apart are remarkable, especially again for a kid who, a 22 year old kid who this is his second album. This is his first time in a, a studio of this, of this magnitude with a new team around him as well with mm. uh, as much as they all got along, I'm sure from the word go, because if you ever spent time with us, he is he is, uh, I'm sure there's an expression I'm missing here, but he and Elton are two of a kind. Uh, He's a I, pretty I intense guy, isn't he? Just, but the humor is, uh, he is whip. <laughs> I speak like he's still with us, and I wish he was, but, but the speed of Elton's humor is easily matched by Gus. And to think of what those two were like in the studio at the same time, I can't imagine it must have been phenomenal and then he put ball in there who necessarily wasn't a quick humor guy but a stone called genius you know so i'm sure they all got up to sort of speed as a team very quickly but there were a lot of reasons why elton shouldn't have or didn't need to perform at the level that he did mm. uh, out of nerves or what have you but as you say he he completely did and his vocals show it John and I had planned to talk about the third verse of Border Song, but we never managed to get round to it. So I'm going to do a little bit of talking about it now. Incidentally, although there is no registration date for Border Song, we are able roughly to date it um, when it was written. Elton did a BBC session on the 28th of July 1969, and he didn't play it then, which suggests that either it wasn't written or more likely that it wasn't ready to be played. And then we do actually have a date for the Olympic rehearsals. I didn't realise this, but we do because it's there in the catalogue for the sale of the tapes. Um, in there, it says that the rehearsals took place on the 18th of August. It's a Monday, um, which is possible. It would place it, according to Elton's diary in the Captain Fantastic book, directly between his two holidays. So... He went to Bournemouth on Friday the 15th of August and then he went to Ilfracombe on Saturday the 23rd. I suppose it's possible that he would have done some recording at Olympic between those two dates. But I guess we'll never know until we get to see those missing diary entries. So anyway, it's good to know that it's a summer song. It was written July, maybe early August 1969. And Elton said before that... Uh, Porter Song was missing a third verse, but thanks to the lyric sheet that Maxine put up for sale recently, we know that, that it wasn't and that Elton rejected Bernie's third verse. And we also know that he made a few other really important amendments because it was Elton that put in the very hymn-like repetition of the first line of each verse at the end of the respective verses. And it was also Elton, seemingly, that wrote the first line of the second verse, Holy Moses, I have been deceived. It's not written anywhere on the lyric sheet, that line. And then most importantly, Elton removed and replaced Bernie's final verse, which went like this. My God, I'm sick of this motel. Please give me a key to this coal hole. There's a man down here in a mousetrap praying that he doesn't see your black cat. Um, 
the sentiments in there don't really seem to me to follow on particularly well from the previous verses um, and from what Elton took to be the chorus of the song. This is very much set indoors, while the rest of the song seems to be outside, very outdoorsy. There are similar themes, of course. You've got, in the first half of the song, you've got themes of exile and persecution, but also there's some hope there. He says he's going back to the border. He says that the wind has changed direction, and you can almost imagine Bernie Poppins opening up his umbrella and floating away. But then for the third verse, things have suddenly got a lot darker. He's locked in. He's either in a motel room or a coal hole. And there's a man, I don't know who that is either. It could be the protagonist, could be someone else, who's got himself caught somehow in a mousetrap. And he's hoping, he's already in pretty dire situations, but he's hoping not to be torn apart by a cat. So this song, as Bernie wrote it, ends on a really big, really weird downer. Um, And most importantly, the metre of Bernie's final verse is just wrong. It doesn't scan with the previous two at all. Um, Elton does keep some elements. He keeps the there's a man fragment, which suggests to me that he did have a crack at trying to get this verse to fit. Um, And that was the only bit that he saw working for him. And it's also possible that the colour of the cat might have directed his thinking as well. And I find it really interesting that there's three other works of Bernie's that would end up echoing that excised verse. Most obviously Holiday Inn with someone being sick of a motel, but also Cry to Heaven with the idea of a black cat toying with a mouse and maybe applying this as an analogy for how people interact with one another. And then finally, The Rat Catcher, which was one of Bernie's verses after dark on his solo poetry album. Anyway, I spoke about this quite a bit in my episode 12, where I drew a parallel with how Bernie must have felt, uprooted from Lincolnshire and living in Elton's bedroom, The main thing I wanted to say at this time about the lyric is just how cool it was of Elton to conclude the song in the way that he did. And he could be very proud, I think, of having this strong and clear anti-racism message in his early catalogue. There is a chance, timing-wise, that's the main reason why I was trying to work out when it was written, there's a chance that Elton might have got the idea for his third verse from Rogers Cook and Greenaway, who would have been getting their song Melting Pot ready at around about the time that Elton was writing the song. Maybe that's the case, maybe not. Maybe it's the other way around, who knows. So anyway, that's the end of the discussions about the album proper. But John and I did touch on the topic of what the album was for, and uh, what they were trying to do with it. So there's one school of thought led sort of by Gus that this was a a very elaborate set of demos. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've spoken about this. I haven't really mentioned it because I don't believe it. I don't feel that that's what they were trying to achieve. It's counterintuitive. But he said that and he knows better than I do. But 
Yeah. Yes, I've seen that. And then you've also got to take in the context of Elton's letter to Danny Hutton. He says in that letter, we're going to be an album act, essentially, right. and we're going to allow people to cover our songs. That's kind of what he says, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's really interesting to, uh, again, it was one of those things that you wish you were there at the time so that you could hear it in real time. It's obviously an album. It's obviously not a publisher's demo project because uh, we've heard those, if we're lucky, for other artists and things, and, and those are not this. So I, I, I wonder. I mean, I, I was surprised when Gus said to me, as he did, um, we, you know, I thought that we were recording an album of, of elaborate demos uh, with the idea that Elton would not necessarily be a touring act but he would be a songwriter and other people would cover the songs. Now, you know, maybe that was something that Dick James had in mind, present these songs in the best possible way. It wasn't until a couple of months later, in March or so, when the band, right. I don't know when they started rehearsing. I'd love to know that, in fact. Um, but they certainly didn't start playing until March. So maybe maybe at this stage there really wasn't much of an idea of him going out and performing i mean he had you're right he had done gigs before i mean even we're talking post bluesology he had done gigs before but generally those were the occasional gigs sort of with hookfoot and one could argue if it was an elton gig with hookfoot as a backing band or if it was a hookfoot gig with elton as mm. a lead singer um but yeah there was nothing to suggest that he was you know going to go form a band and go on the road until, uh, yeah, March uh, 1970. Uh, there's one more track that needs to be discussed, Rock and Roll Madonna, which was released as the second single from the Elton John album project in the summer of 1970. I started off my conversation with John saying that I wasn't much of a fan of this song, which you'll know if you've listened to episode one of this podcast. But it did at least show that they were working on that multi-headed beast strategy, the dichotomy of Elton, the chamber musician, up against Elton, the raucous rock and roller, way before the trip to the troubadour. Here's John on that. My take on this, honestly, is a little bit different, Neil. And I don't have sort of hard and fast data to back this up. It's more of a gut feeling from conversations I've had. I kind of think that developing and releasing, especially Rock and Roll Madonna, was almost a desperate kind of thing because they had put out what uh, from the Black Album what they thought was just, you know, oh my God, heart-stopping, incredible material. And even though we're talking about it now 50 years later and it's, it's a, a vital piece to the collections of, of everyone that's listening, mm -hmm. it didn't take. It just didn't take at the time. It, it didn't sell very well at first. Stuart Epps said that you could, you could very often hear it being played in hi-fi um, sales rooms. Right, right, exactly. Yes, as a showpiece kind of yeah. thing. But that doesn't make a successful album, does it? Yeah, I guess the average record buyer just didn't do it. So they, were, they had released a Border Song. Border Song just died to death, unfortunately. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what they wanted to do was, I guess what you're saying is correct, they wanted to show uh, another side of Elton, yes, but to take a song that wasn't on the album and release it as a single during the album single run, mm. very, very unusual. And I kind of think they were trying to force something in a way. They were trying to 
sort of change gear in a way. Um, didn't work also. Rock and Roll Madonna um, didn't chart. So back to the drawing board and, and uh, thank God for your song. But, yeah. but I don't think it was a pre-planned thing. John then tolerated me going on about how I was pretty sure that this song was recorded way back in the summer of 1969 because I've heard a recording that Peter Thomas has got of the song from a BBC session back then and then I remember it being basically the same as the released version but without the horns and without the overdubbed crowd. I respectfully disagree. Okay, well you're more likely to know than me. But why um, do you? Why, what makes you say that? Because so, it's a but, totally what, different set of musicians for a start. Well, I'll tell you what I think and I'll tell you why I think it and, and we can see where we land. But what I have is Rock and Roll Madonna being recorded at Trident on March 20th, 1970. So oh. quite a bit oh. of time oh. after everything. Okay. But without the horns and the, and the audience stuff. So that would have come on after March 20th, maybe, I don't know, how soon after and maybe the horns and the audience overdubs could have even possibly been recorded at uh, Dick James, for all I know. Mm. But I know that the, the core, again, the, the basic tracks for Rock and Roll Madonna were recorded on March 20th, 1970 at Trident. And I know this from a, from a box, uh, the, the master. Right. Okay. Well, I'm not yeah. going to argue with that. That, that makes way more sense. Um, but so that I mean, shows it, me that the BBC thing is wrong, which always, always confused me. The dates just didn't add up. I would like to hear that BBC thing. Maybe they just had the sound of that song down so much that two performances sounded, you know, extremely similar. Yeah. Um, but to my mind, there's no question. And that's, so that would explain why Hookfoot yeah. sort of, you know, was, so was on that track. It's a Tumbleweed recording. Basically, they were starting to record Tumbleweed on the very same day. Mm-hmm. On the same day that they recorded the, the final master of Rock and Roll Madonna, they also recorded Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, and also uh, an early version of Come Down in Time. And that's when the Tumbleweed Sessions began. Now, that's a delicious um, little tidbit right there. Come Down in Time? Well, just the sense of that. Do you think that might be a band demo? You don't have any idea, do you? I do. Uh, Gus and I spoke about it. Uh, this is off the track from this album, obviously, but mm. a, a quick uh, anecdote that that yes, I, I don't know why I heard this. I don't know how I would have found this out at the time that I was speaking to Gus in the mid-90s, but I asked him point blank, I've heard, Gus, that, that there was an original version of Come Down in Time. What do you remember about it? And he said, yes, that's true. And it was recorded with the same band that basically Hookfoot. It was recorded with Hookfoot, the, the band for Tumbleweed, and it came out fine. And I suppose they were going to use it, but then Paul heard it. Yeah. And he sort of stole the song in a sense. He, he, he went to Gus and said, you know, come down in time. I think I can really do something really interesting with that. And Gus said, okay, go ahead. You know, I mean, they already had the original version in the can. So no, you know, there'd be no loss if Paul's idea wasn't strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we all know, it was. And, and Paul not only did the orchestral arrangement, but he, he arranged the entire band for that particular song. So, the one that we've come to know and love low these nearly 50 years uh, is, is in fact a re-recording of Come Down in Time from, from top to bottom. So there you are, even in this 
post-Jules world, there are still some wonders to look forward to for us all. Anyway, John went on to tell me a bit more about the recording of Rock and Roll Madonna. Caleb, who had obviously played on the Black Album, but now David Glover on bass and Roger Pope on drums, uh, went through Rock and Roll Madonna and recorded it. One, two, three, four, five, six tracks is all they used on this. Stereo drums. You've got the, you've got the box. There. I do. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. Um, I don't have every box, but I've got this one. And this is two tracks of drums. So Gus liked his stereo drums. Yeah. One track on the bass, one track of guitar, which is obviously Caleb on electric. Mono piano. So only one track of piano. Which reminds me, I think I think Pilot was also a mono piano. Um, so that was usually a stereo thing, but I think Pilot was also mono. And then one track for vocals. So pretty sparse and, and very sort yes. of hook foot e. And then at some point later, um, I wish I knew exactly the specifics, but they obviously later they brought in the fantastic horn section. I mean, just the horns on, on Madonna are just so, they evoke Don't Shoot Me. Uh, they're just so perky and fun and... We don't know who's arranged them, but we can only assume that it's Paul. Do you know? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it was Paul. I don't know if it was a Gus head arrangement, um, like he used to call them, that he did on Don't Shoot Me. Uh, And then the audience ambiance that, uh, as most of us know, was uh, made its reappearance uh, in Benny and the Jets and was taken from the Jimi Hendrix album. I I, kind of feel like those overdubs and audience things were done at Dick James a little bit later, but... Yeah, they tore through it, uh, and then I guess they thought, even though we've got this again, very pastoral, very very dark Rembrandty looking kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, screw it, let's put let's put out the rock and roll Madonna, let's mix it up, <laughs> and it was recorded the same day the Border Song came out in the UK as a single. So oh, really? so that shows the sort of overlap, the, the pace at which the train was moving at this point. I mean, the whole month of March in 1970, I'm just going to run through and, and let's see let's see what we find out here. March 9th, Elton records piano as a session musician on I Can't Tell the Bottom from the Top for the Hollies at Abbey Road. March 14th, there's an ad in Disc and Music Echo anticipating the March 20th release of, of Border Song. So Border Song is starting starting to be promoted in press. March 17th through the 20th-ish, he, he does the Hollies' Perfect Lady Housewife. March 20th, Border Song is released in the UK. They record Rock and Roll Madonna. Uh, they also record the beginnings of Tumbleweed. I mean, the album isn't out yet. They're probably in the studio before you could buy the single in the stores on March 20th. I mean, they are wasting no time. Uh, and they, they record Ballad of the Well-Known Gun, and then, uh, again, the first version of Come Down in Time. Uh, two days later, they're rehearsing um, for the March 25th gig at uh, the Revolution Club. So that's when they start to prepare that showcase. Uh, so that's March 22nd. Then March 23rd, they record one, two, three other tumbleweed songs. Um, Son of Your Father, My Father's Gun, and Into the Old Man's Shoes. Do you think those are the actual recordings? I I suspect these are demos, honestly, but I I don't know either way. But that's a hell of a month. And then on the 25th, they do this afternoon reception at the the Revolution Club. 
the day after the Revolution Club, and it should be noted Elton's birthday, Elton's 23rd birthday, thank you very much, um, mm -hmm. Hookfoot and Elton go on BBC Radio and John Peel didn't do Take Me to the Pilot. At some point they did Top of the Pops as well, didn't they? For Borders' song. Uh, April. That was April 2nd. Oh, was it? Okay. And uh, Dusty was there. In a sense, those of us who have followed Elton for so long are used to his pace. And the fact that, especially back at this time, he started to record two albums a year and the, the album that he's touring is an album before the album that he's just recorded. But this, to me... This March 1970 is sort of where that starts. They held on to Tumbleweed for some time, didn't they? You know, they couldn't really bring it out straight away because they had to clear the decks. But they decided to rush forward Rock and Roll Madonna. Maybe they felt it didn't belong on the album itself, the third album. So, yeah, so Rock and Roll Madonna was brought out, it was issued as a single in June 1970, June 19th. And the public was unimpressed and somewhat baffled, I would have thought. Yeah, I think the, the public was unimpressed, and I think the team was baffled as to what the hell, what what do they got to do to sell a record, basically, I think, is, <laughs> is what they were trying to do. And I, I've talked with Ray Williams about this just a little, little bit, and just reading between the lines, I think he now appreciates the incongruity of doing what was done, um, of putting out a non-album single, uh, and certainly one that sounds so different than the album that they're trying to promote. But Border Song just did not give them the results that they wanted, even after he did it on Top of the Pops, um, which yeah. they thought was going to be, as we know from Stuart Epps, and also Elton's book, I think, talks about it. You know, they thought that that was really going to boost the sales, and it just didn't. Was it a live performance? Do we know? New audio track most likely recorded the day before or the morning of the broadcast. Okay, yeah, yeah. so it was... You know, and then he went on to, to Europe and, and started to do gigs there. and uh, Sergio Mendes. <laughs> certainly. Uh, also, his first uh, television appearance from Hitsagogo in Hamburg on, uh, in, yeah. in May, late May 1970. So things were growing and things were developing. And he was getting good reviews, obviously, and good press. But it's just, you know, the, the album made that famous entrance into the charts at 48. Next week, 60. The week after that, goodbye. But obviously, it would come back into the charts later on. Yeah, yeah, after, after your song. And, and they were already starting to think about your song by this stage because he recorded a video for oh, your song. Yes. He was given a bit of an opportunity to have a camera crew when he was in, I think, in Amsterdam. Oh. I find this whole era really fascinating, the, this sort of hinterland where they got quite a lot of stuff in the bag and they were ready to go but the world hadn't yet caught up yes, with them yes. and and it must have been a strange tension for them while they were going out and doing crumlin and all of those incredibly unsatisfying college -y gigs that they end up ended up doing Not paying their dues it's difficult to know where to stop with the 50-year anniversary Elton stuff but um, I'm never going to catch up with him I have to accept that he just moves so fast I'm not going to manage it. So much has happened already that I've missed. 50 Years of the Troubadour, Tumbleweed's been recorded, it's ready to come out. Friends was recorded in September 1970. All of the European tours happened, come and gone. As I've said in my last episode, I've got to let the 50 Years stuff slide, at least a bit, mainly because I'm not a fan of deadlines. Um, and then... Also, we've got a ridiculous bounty of new 
music, to, new old music to talk about with this jewel box. What a joy. Even while I've been putting this episode together, um, the new video for Regimental Sergeant Zippo has been released. I mean, what a mental thing to be able to say that is. So there's loads more of that coming up. I've got some bluesology in the pipeline as well, and I have to do something about 171170 and the effortlessly cool interplay between the musicians. That's what keeps me coming back to Elton. Thank you for listening to this monster of an episode. I hope to hear from some of you on Facebook or email. The address is eltonpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to play you out of this episode with a rather scratchy sounding BBC session of Take Me to the Pilot, which is from the 5th of April 1970. And I'm going to wish Caleb a happy birthday, which was a couple of days back. Enjoy. If you feel that it's real, I'm on trial And I'm ahead in your prison Like a coin in your man I am dented and I spent with hot trees on